0: This is the shift podcast. Today on the shift daily podcast, being a patient is a hard pill to swallow, but it doesn't need to be. Psychiatrist Dr. Harvey Chachanoff uh, helps us understand what it means to be a patient and how to be a good one. Why there is a difference between health care and health caring. Uh, that was inspiring. That moment it's coming up in the podcast. Plus, are you okay with pasta? And how about taking a taxi or a cab or an Uber? And who launched a drone over the Kremlin in Moscow and why? Dr. Hannah Shalis joins us from Odessa in Ukraine and helps us understand about the propaganda about the strike, even if it was a real strike, and gives us the latest on the war in Ukraine.
1: This is The Shift Podcast.
0: Here on The Shift on Good News Tuesday, we've had many stories about people that have... um, you know, gone into the the hospital and come out of the hospital. People who have been injured and then they heal. People who go through medical things and then they recover. See, the thing about good news is you can't have good news unless bad is present. Good and bad dance, just like left and right, hot and cold, up and down. They are present in our lives regardless. The question is, is, which frame are you going to take and how are you going to look at that? So in order to celebrate good news, that means usually we've had to learn from something that we would uh, morality-wise at least call bad that happened, including the stories of a brother who has went into palliative care and actually came out. I'll never forget that day here on Good News Tuesday, where we did have that phone call that said, my brother has been released from palliative care, and the best part about it was obviously him getting out, but it was also the doctor said, I've never done a release form before. I don't know how this works because most people don't come out of palliative care. You see, the thing about the good news perspective on all this is we surrender to getting help. Usually we surrender to our instincts. We surrender to our community and we surrender to the people around us. That doesn't happen unless you're willing to surrender and it's very entertaining to watch ourselves and realize we are terrible at surrendering to help from people. We're terrible. We hate asking for it. And that's where we're going to start this conversation uh, here now. Uh, Harvey Chach- uh, Chachanov is a, a doctor, he's a psychiatrist, and he's from the University of Manitoba, formally. Uh, The fancy title is Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Manitoba, Palliative Care Research. That part's just a coincidence. Um, Harvey, how are you doing? Thanks for being here, man. Appreciate it. So we are not very good at surrendering, are we? Like, we are not very good at asking for help. I don't know about you, but I'm sure you can probably come up with five stories in the last month where you were just putting around the house or doing something in life, and you're like, I probably should ask somebody for help for this, and you don't. I mean, it seems to be this this piece of our makeup that um, we're just not very good at that. Uh,
2: we uh, we all value our, our, our personal autonomy. We, uh, you know, we like to think that... Uh, we can do things and we can do things independent of others. Um, And, you know, through, um, through, through much of life, uh, that sort of becomes part of our identity, you know, we see ourselves as being people who are capable of doing things of getting stuff done. Um, But, you know, the the reality is that, you know, as we grow older, um, you know, as we leave youth behind, uh, we all learn that uh, we are vulnerable. And certainly as we age, we uh, eventually come to the realization, um, if not earlier, that uh, not only are we vulnerable, but we are mortal, um, which means that we need to depend on others. And eventually, you know, part of the human condition is that we will have to depend on others.
0: Not only are we vulnerable, but yet isn't it interesting how we're way less vulnerable when we realize how vulnerable we are we are way less vulnerable when we realize that we have people in community and support systems and structures around us to help us
2: yeah well maybe the way i i would think of it is is that um this this notion of vulnerability i I don't know that we are less vulnerable in recognizing our vulnerability but i think the uh, the fact that we can see our humanity in, in our vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact is that all of us are breakable. All of us eventually feel uh, fractured by, by life. Um, and that's not because we are weak or flawed. It's simply because we are, are human beings. Um, it, it takes a lot of uh, lived experience to, uh, to actually, I don't know that we ever embrace that, but to try and make peace with that.
0: Hmm. Uh, so this is where we dovetail into the topic, and that is being a patient and asking for help is one thing. Like going to the doctor and saying, "Hey, doc, what's wrong," and then accepting what you're told is one thing, and then maybe getting into a little bit more extensive care whether you're in the hospital or whatever is another thing and then this whole righteousness thing kicks in about i i I got this and i don't need to listen we are terrible patients like we are why is it so hard for us to get into that and i bring it up because here on the shift we've talked about our health a lot we've talked about the ability to honor what's going on with your body and then yet we still have this resistance that we we step into, where we're just really not good at it.
2: Well, I think the reason we're not good at it, uh, you know, it, it comes back to the word you used uh, a moment ago, and that is uh, patience. Um, to to be a patient means to be defined on the basis of things that are very generic. You know, you're a heart patient, or you're a cancer patient, or you know, you're defined according to things that are. Kind of you know standard issue you know all, all of us you know have uh you know certain bits and bobs that are pretty common one to the other in terms of form and function and none of us like to see ourselves in terms of being a patient being generic and that is the reason i think why we struggle with patienthood because it somehow means having to give up our our individuality the things that we feel uniquely make us who we are. Hmm.
0: Is it to control? Are we having a hard time uh, with that whole control thing?
2: Well, I mean, I mean, control is certainly a part of it. I mean, the, the, because, you know, the minute you walk into the healthcare setting, and it doesn't matter if it's for a routine checkup, or it doesn't matter if you're there for, you know, something that is far more dire, uh, the reality is that you have to Yield control, you have to yield the individuality that you might value in order for somebody to be able to observe you through, you know, the uh, an objective lens. So, you know, who you are as a person becomes less important, but you know how your bits and bobs, how your various pieces are functioning at that point in time becomes the focus of the healthcare system and that's hard uh and that's why you know i've i've written uh that you know being a patient is a difficult pill to swallow um because we don't like to be a patient when it means having to relinquish having to give up the uniqueness of who we are as individuals
0: Mm. Uh, that's quite powerful the um the word patient like you said like patience and patient i mean It is a strange sort of twist on the same thing isn't it um we're not very patient at being a patient and we're not very patient with our patients
2: (laughs) right well and and the and the sicker you are i mean you know the more your patience is put to the test um and again you know it can be minor things like you know having to you know wait for an appointment um you know being followed uh, in the hospital according to, you know, an ID bracelet that, you know, has a unique identifier. Um, I mean, there are, are so many places uh, within the system where, you know, you begin to feel like, you know, you're, who you are is somehow under assault. But, you know, when things are are more minor... Um, we kind of put up with those inconveniences. You know, we begin to just sort of say, well, you know, that's, you know, that's the cost of doing business. If we're gonna go to the hospital and we need a checkup, we realize that we have to kind of, you know, put, you know, our individual unique needs on hold at that moment and say, well, you know, this is the time that my physician can see me or this is the time that I, you know, I have to stand in a queue to get into, uh, in, into treatment. Um, but when we feel like patienthood has eclipsed personhood you know, you feel like mm. we are no longer seen. Um, th- that's when um, people really begin to uh, experience suffering. And you see that, you know, particularly when, you know, people are are very ill and, uh, you know, sort of the totality of who they are somehow becomes defined based on, you know, a, a differential diagnosis or or a problem checklist. Um, you know, I, I've written a lot about this and, and, and thought a lot about it, and you know, one thing that I've said is that you know what what patients are looking for metaphorically in in the eye of a healthcare provider is a reflection that will affirm, that will affirm their sense of who they are as an individual. So, I mean, we all accept the fact that when we go into healthcare, um, you know, that we uh, you know have to put up with certain indignities and we have to put up with you know a certain exposure. Um, But when at the same time we feel that who we are as a human being is somehow acknowledged, um, that just allows us to tolerate the process. It
0: brings me back to a couple of different personal experiences. I've had a few surgeries and all those things, and and there is a bit of a a (laughs) meat processing plant assembly line nature some of the health systems and structures of day surgeries you go in you're in a room you're color coded they call your name you shuffle your way over you get chain like i mean it's not really the best. it's probably efficient but it's not really the most human feeling um of the processes but then there's this magical piece this magical piece where the nurse or or caretaker uh steps in and there's it goes two ways someone walks up they look at your wristband and they're like you know shane hewitt that you yep and then there's the other one where they walk in and they're like, hi, Shane, how you doing? Can I get you a blanket? And th- there is this humanity piece. And, and like these human beings are off the charts magical when it comes to connecting. And some of them are amazing at it and some of them aren't. But is that really where this kind of lands into is that? you know, the responsibility and the humanity of what these people create for us? Because I really want to acknowledge the the magic of those people.
2: A- absolutely. And, uh, and and I think, if anything, you know, what uh, sort of the, you know, the uh, the bulk of my work, certainly, uh, you know, over the last decade or two, is really looking at, at, at making sure that we uh, acknowledge and value uh, the human side of medicine. In fact, my most recent book that I published is called Dignity and Care, the human side of medicine and essentially what it says is that you know look at um everybody who goes into healthcare you know usually goes into this work not because they want to you know uh, assault the sensibilities of people we all go into this work because you know we hopefully are are, are trying to help people through a time of their feeling profoundly uh fragile and and vulnerable and as you pointed out um sometimes it doesn't take a whole lot. You know, a, a hand on a shoulder, um, a look in the eye, uh, just a, a, a brief acknowledgement. I, I remember, and I've, I've told this anecdote uh, many times before, but I, re- I remember once standing outside of an examination room. This was a, at, a, at a Cancer Care Manitoba where I do my work and the door was about to shut. Um, and inside, you know, I, I knew the, the physician who is a very busy uh, oncologist, hematologist. And the last thing I heard him say, to the patient before the door shut was, so how was the holiday? And the truth is, I mean, lymphoma and leukemia don't take holidays, but people do. And I can assure you that within moments of that, um, they had moved on. I mean, you know, if I walked into that room a half hour later, they weren't looking at photo albums. But in that brief instance, you know, it's just the acknowledgement that, you know, you you are a person, and so you know. I have written about um, you know what I kind of call sort of like the core efficiencies of providing what I refer to as dignity-conserving care, um, and and the data, which is you know really interesting. I mean, the data we have on this shows that you know w- when you look at the things that can affirm a person's sense of dignity, um, the attitude, the disposition. I mean, these nuances that we're talking about. Are the most profound predictor of whether or not somebody experiences their dignity as being intact or not. Uh, I just came across another study recently that showed that the one thing that predicts suicidality in patients with cancer is the um, connection and the uh in- integrity of connection between that patient and their medical oncologist, more so than any psychological intervention and more so than any psychiatric medication. So there's lots of evidence that shows that these kinds of connections have a profound influence on patients.
0: COVID must have driven you crazy watching everything going on in the old folks' homes and the assisted living and and the sort of lack of humanity that was inserted into that with, you know, separation, visitors, um, just the health problems, overwhelm of employees. Like, I, I don't want to mean to put words in your mouth, but that's what's coming to my mind because that's what I think of, right? I think of assisted living. I mean, there are people listening right now, Harvey, that are, they know full well they should be in an assisted living facility, right? There are people that listening right now that they know full well that someone in their family would be better off in an assisted living sort of scenario. Um, And I don't mean to go as far as the exit ramp of palliative care. I'm just saying that, you know, it's time to maybe get a little help. But we're not very good at that. And is that sort of that one last checkbox that we don't want to hit that? oof, This is the season now. This is the season where I got him. You know, someone else is going to drive the bus. We have a hard time letting someone else drive our car and riding in the passenger seat, let alone this big of a conversation.
2: Yeah, but I mean, but the truth is, and again, you know, sort of extending the bus metaphor. I mean, you know, if we if we look at this as a uh, as as a trip uh, that we're that we're taking, uh, I mean, the truth is that, you know, the moment we're born, um, you know, our our lives become, um, uh, you know, we, we we take flight. And eventually we're we're, we're destined to land, Um, you know, it doesn't matter if we shut our eyes, if we deny that reality, if we pretend that that's not the case. But the truth is, I mean, we're all headed in that direction. And so uh, what do we do? And we're taking a trip. Well, I mean, the best thing we can do is, you know, make sure we've packed right, make sure that we've anticipated the things that can go wrong and um, and by the way, and, and I have to kind of bring you back to something you said in the introduction about, you know, no one gets discharged from palliative care. Uh, there are tremendous misconceptions about palliative care and you know, rather than thinking about palliative care as kind of the equivalent of, you know, um, kind of a visit with the coroner and a death sentence, palliative care is a mode of approaching care that uh, focuses on optimizing quality of life. And the truth is, many, many, many people enter into palliative care facilities who are discharged because the goal of palliative care is to try and improve symptoms, to try and improve quality of life, and get people into the community where most people want to be for as long a period of time as they can be. Many people are also, I mean, you know, with uh, most palliative care programs or palliative care programs that are are well-resourced, um, are supporting people out in the community. So, if you know, if listeners can begin to think of palliative care as not so much something that needs to be kind of avoided and a bad thing, but rather as being something that they would want to take with them to prepare for this journey so that... Uh, it's as comfortable and as good a quality of life as they can possibly have until time runs out. And again, it's just back to the issue of vulnerability and mortality. Eventually time runs out for all of us. So rather than avoiding the conversation, why not talk about it so that we can be prepared?
0: Dr. Harvey Chajanov is our, our expert right now. He's a psychiatrist, palliative care expert. If we were sitting around today Um, I'm going to bring this right home into, into real life. The reason why these things matter to me, the reason why I took a stand for these, these kinds of care homes during COVID and all the things that happened, um, was because of the fact, full confession, I don't want to die alone. I don't, I don't want to die alone. That's a big thing for me. It was after I got divorced. It was the thing that I went through. I've been with my psychologist many hours talking about that topic and I share it because I want other people to know if it's a thing for you, you're not alone in that. Um, but is that why this matters? I mean, Harvey, let's bring it home into real life here. I mean, when, when you really drill it down as to why things like palliative care matter uh, for a guy like you, I mean, we become a good patient when we are able to look at our belief systems, I think, when we look at our belief systems, our knowledge, our history, our memories, and we're able to sort of just be with it and listen. Um, my question is, is how do you become a good patient? And how do we really just be open to the fact that there are pieces that may resist this, or there may be reasons why we have motivation to make sure that everybody, you know, as they enter that season of their life, are comfortable?
2: Well, you know, um, listen, uh, palliative care has been around for uh, for a few decades and was originally introduced by a uh, a woman in, um, in, in the UK named Dame Cicely Saunders. Uh, she established the first, um, Modern hospice uh, uh, in uh, in in London, England, St. Christopher's Hospice. And what's interesting, and again, uh, this is sort of a roundabout way of getting to uh, to answering your question. But by, by way of background, she was a physician. She had trained as a nurse, and she had trained as a social worker. And uh, the reason I bring that up is that it it says that, and I think this was her position, was that. In order to attend to the needs of people who are, as you put it, in this season of their life, we need to not only be looking after, you know, their physical issues like, you know, good pain management and the like, but we also need to be looking at psychological issues, existential issues, spiritual issues, you know, for you, you know, you've you've talked about, you know, the wish to not be alone. Um, How can you most ensure that that likely won't happen by the fact that you've put it out there? You've said, you know, that's, That's an important thing to me and you know as as people enter into this season of their life there are different things that are important to them and they range uh, from the physical the psychological the spiritual the existential and so if we can talk about them we can start being attentive to them you know I, i recently you know spoke to i mean it was a very you know tragic case of a 20 year old 28 year old woman married metastatic breast cancer young child only child from her family of origin and yet what we talked about and what was important to her was being able to give voice to her legacy telling her story um, giving advice that she could leave behind for her child to provide guidance through the years giving explicit permission to her husband who was survivor that you know that she wanted him to find happiness even if that meant finding a new partner to to make his way in life uh, without her and to give gratitude to all the people that she'd been connected with and this is actually a form of a therapy that we've developed that we call dignity therapy it, it creates a a document through the guidance of a of a of a trained uh, therapist who then Uh, transcribes it, edits it, and gives it to that individual for them to bequeath to a family member or loved one. The the point I'm making is that if we know what is important to people, and and palliative care knows that physical, psychological, existential, uh, and spiritual issues are important, if if we can speak to those things, then we can start to address it. On the other hand, if we pretend that, you know, we're going to live forever that we're not mortal that we you know that that death is not something that we're even allowed to talk about because it's too scary uh, the truth is you know it's like uh, you know driving with uh, blinders on it's like walking through life with your eyes shut you know, so mm-hmm. really, why would you want to do that? Um, and and by the way, on the flip side, speaking of you know your eyes shut, and this is the reason why I always say you know that issues of personhood are so important for healthcare providers to be aware of, um, and, and have and have written about this as well quite extensively. And that is that you know when when you can find out who your patient is, um, it changes your experience it changes the experience of the patient because they feel acknowledged it changes the experience mm-hmm. of the family member because they feel you now are recognizing you know who this person is but for the healthcare provider you know knowing that and again people have told us you know all kinds of things when we ask them you know what do we need to know about you as a person to take the best care of you that we can we find out you know you know I, i'm a survivor of you know childhood uh sexual abuse i'm a um i I am a survivor of the residential school system you know remember one patient i spoke to recently I'm, i'm a former chair of a department of medicine the the point i'm making is that once you know these things about someone it forever changes the way you see and experience them and you know what ends up happening is you end up providing better care. Um, you know, people feel more accepted, uh, they are more honest, they're more disclosing of what's important to them, there's less problems with discordance around goals of care, and our data also shows that healthcare providers end up feeling more satisfied with their work, and that mitigates against burnout. So. The the bottom line, even though, you know, people say, well, do we really have time to do these sorts of things? You know, the the niceties of care. I say in terms of the bottom line, well, you know, I mean, the the reason why most healthcare systems get sued is not because of medical misadventure. It's because people just didn't pay attention to personhood. You know, it's usually a lack of kindness that will get you, you know you know, uh, litigated against, uh, not that you, you know, made a mistake, but you know, that you just weren't behaving very well. So I think that in terms of the bottom line, these are the things that we need to do that I think make the healthcare system better for, for the providers and for the recipients.
0: In the conversation of how do we become a good patient? Now this answer is simple, but it ain't easy. Uh, what I'm hearing about, I would use in my stuff, I would call it the power of declaration. Um, which is sharing. So isn't it interesting to think that if you're going into a health scenario that uh, here's a possibility, I'll create with it. If you're going into a health scenario, if you were to say, you know what, I'm going to be a good patient today. I'm going to share myself and what I'm going through. And I'm going to make sure that I give the people around me the tools to understand who I am. And isn't that interesting? Because if that's the case, becoming a good patient is as simple as practicing every day so before you get to that season of your life you can actually practice this inside yourself every chance you get all day every day and it's the same thing so you can actually practice being a good patient
2: yeah the, I guess I'm I'm struggling with this notion of uh, of good patience uh, because good mm-hmm. patient sort of you know implies uh compliance and and, and being a patient implies, ah. You know, um, making sure.
0: Yeah, there's morality. Well, that good. we
2: are, you know, are are um, flexible enough that we can accommodate to the healthcare system, and I think, you know, I mean, most people, you know, they they do their best to try and accommodate to bend. Um, but where it gets painful is where you feel like the system is, you know, is breaking you rather than you know you're simply having to bend. So, uh, yes, being a good patient means you know uh, accommodating to the realities of what healthcare can and can't provide. Uh, but being a good healthcare provider, I think, also means acknowledging not only the patient with the illness but the person who appears before you. Um, because when we lose sight of that you know that that's when we lose our humanity that's when we start making mistakes and again um you know it, it it's it's interesting because even when you recall your own healthcare experience you know what is it the thing that you remember you know you remember somebody putting a hand on your shoulder saying oh you know here's a blanket mm-hmm. you know i i recall yep. speaking to a woman who decades after the fact that she had had uh, surgery for 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 breast cancer the, 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 the distinct memory she had before she went into the operating room was the person who was moving her gurney, um, putting a hand on her shoulder, looking in their eye and saying, you know, it's going to be okay.
0: Yeah. And I want to acknowledge one little bit that I went through with an MRI recently. The doctor had put the needle in right into the damage in order to get the, the dye in there. And uh, the pain was so overwhelming, it literally knocked me out. I've had a couple of surgeries there. There's little emotional baggage. Plus there was just the overwhelm of pain. And you know what the uh, technician said when I woke mm. up? She diminished the experience in a good way by saying, just so you know, this happens. And it usually happens to the biggest burliest of people um that go through this you're not alone I just want you to know that it's no problem we got you yeah and, and I don't know if it was a look on my face that maybe looked a little bit shocked or shamed or, or whatever in myself um when I woke up and uh but yeah the first thing she did was she made sure that she softened the scenario and said yeah don't worry this happens all the time I don't want you to feel bad about it and that that's that humanity magic right she did that without even asking me absolutely just to make sure. And
2: and again, you know, I mean, I think that you know th- this whole conversation is really about you know trying to uh, to humanize you know um, the uh, the culture uh, of healthcare. You know, I mean, uh, you know, and, and in my mind, it's almost kind of like you know, I mean, it sounds like a subtlety, but to me, that, I mean, there's a big difference between healthcare versus health caring. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the I think the the implication is that health caring. It it provides everything that a healthcare system needs to and ought to, Um, but with recognition, uh, and again, this is a title of a paper I published a few years ago, and it was called The Secret is Out, Patients are People with Feelings that Matter.
0: I love it. Being a psychiatrist is fun cuz you get all of the science-y medical stuff and then you get all the mindful and the humanity in part with it. So this is neat. I really I really appreciate your work, uh, Harvey. This is great.
2: Well, it was fun to talk with you.
1: This is the Shift Podcast. Are you Are you, are you, are you okay. 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 Are you okay with
0: Uh, These updates will continue, by the way, as we know more. All right, so Are You Okay With is a a fun and playful series of stories that we like to bat about and throw your way and have some fun with them here. And you can contribute 877-399-9898 if you want to with text messages, please. We'd like to keep the phone numbers open for anybody who has questions in regards to what's going on with the fires west of Edmonton. So your text message is more than welcome. Hey, Ryan, you ready to go?
1: Yes. Yes. Let's do it. I am here, and I'm ready to rock.
0: Are you okay with pasta? I feel like oh, I say it that way.
1: Pasta, the pasta, the pepperoni. Of course, who doesn't love pasta. It's like the ultimate comfort food. And there's just the diversity of, of types of pasta. is just truly amazing. Rigatoni, mm-hmm. spaghetti, mm-hmm. risotto. Fusilli Jerry. Penny. Yeah. Uh, and it's pasta so good that somebody made a religion about it. Flying spaghetti mm. monster. Like, come on. It's just, mm. it's, it's, it's tremendous. And, you know and I, the best part, oh, tremendous, tremendous. The best part is that everybody's got their own different recipe for spaghetti and meatballs. Like every family sauce tastes different.
0: It's true. Every family sauce does taste different. It's like this secret thing. Um, I, I would have to throw into there, the rice flour based pasta. Mm-hmm. doesn't taste the same as the pasta pasta, much like dry pasta doesn't taste the same as fresh pasta, but I got to tell you, it's pretty good too. If you haven't ever tried it, if the, if the wheat gives you the, the wheat belly and you don't like it much, give that a go. Quite like that. The rotini. Very good. Now, if uh, you need some pasta, Ryan has a hookup. He knows a guy, hundreds of pounds of pasta. Are you a pasta or a pasta? There's a difference.
1: Well, it depends. Am I having pasta or pasta? Like, if I'm having <laughs> fancy food, I'm gonna call it pasta. But if I'm like having a, uh, a like a bowl of you know ten dollars spaghetti at a restaurant, it's pasta. You know, there's there's a difference. There's no ten dollars spaghetti anywhere anymore. There is. There is. Really? Chianti's in Calgary has ten dollar pasta right. still. No.
0: Yep. All right. Hundreds of pounds of pasta were found dumped in a New Jersey town. The gluten-filled hoard was discovered last month and has since triggered an investigation by authorities in Old Bridge, New Jersey, where the pasta was left to rot. We get calls from New Jersey. Like those people. They're nice. Uh, local resident and city town council candidate Nina Joshnowitz shared news of the pasta piles on Facebook on April 26th. Uh, pasta piles. That makes me feel uneasy. She estimated there to be about 500 pounds of dumped pasta along the River Basin in Oldbridge, but residents have a clear explanation for the f- frust-straining
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Huh? Yeah. Uh, situation.
3: The township has no bulk garbage pickup. And because we don't have pickup, we have dumps. We, the funny dump this time was pasta, which, of course, you all picked up. Well, several people on the street, including Nina, say they know who did it, but they all circled the wagons around that neighbor. A sensitive situation, they say, a person they care deeply about and want to protect. We honored their wishes on that, but it brought home the one issue that Nina is adamant about, bulk garbage. It's a financial constraint. When you throw out a couch, it's $300 to call up Sedex. So, or waste management, it's a few hundred dollars for every single thing you want to throw out. And some people have taken to secret and illegal dumping as their go-to answer. We found this hideaway a few hundred feet away from a waterway. TVs, grills, bedroom furniture, construction material. Apparently it's easier for people to go dump stuff in the woods than get rid of it properly. Christopher Eskison has for years taken his kayak out along waterways, snatching out of the estuaries what illegal dumpers discard. I wound up getting four dumpsters filled all the dumpsters to the brim of tires and furniture and other garbage that just washes up and floats up. It's very frustrating. And about the pasta. The Department of Public Works did a great job cleaning it up, as always.
0: As always? How often does this happen? That's from ABC7, by the way. That guy's voice, he reminds me of an actor, and I can't place it. That one guy from the clip, um, it's like a king of queens or... Oh, you know who it is? Uh, it Kevin... was um, Donna's dad from that '70s show. Uh, I never watched that show, but Talia, on. can you kind of skip it in the middle of that and hope that we land in the right place of that clip from uh, the pasta clip there? Just like Don Stark. Yeah, right in the middle of it. Let's see if you can skip to it. I don't know if you can. So, right click right on the waveform if, in your work folder. I mean, it sounds just like Donna's dad. Like it, it, it. I, it looks like him. I can tell you right it now for like watching him? that, it uh, looks Danny exactly Danny DeVito like Christmas
2: him. Ornament. What? I don't know who had oh, that, nope, but that's that's
0: there's also a it. fire sword. <laughs> Spoiler <laughs> alert yes. for the next no, story, are you Okay, it. Kill it. That's the next story. <laughs> 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 I just, uh, there's something about that, uh, like the, uh, this is New Jersey and it sounds New like New that, that Cleveland. That Cleveland voice,
3: which is... DEXO or Waste Management. It's a few hundred dollars you know, for every single thing you want to throw out. And some people have taken to secret and illegal go to dumping as their go-to answer. We found this hideaway a few hundred feet away from a waterway. TVs, grills, bedroom furniture, construction material. Apparently, it's easier for people to go dump Dawn stuff in dad. the woods than get rid
0: of it properly. Chris- no, that's Donna's dad.
1: It well, I can tell you right now the guy looks a lot like him. He doesn't have the afro or the super curly hair that I can see from this picture. But he's a you know, he's a proper New Jersey guy. He's getting yeah. the business, he's getting right. the spaghetti.
0: Are you okay with taking a cab?
1: Taking a cab. Yeah, I take a lot. I take a lot of cabs. I take a lot. You know, I will say, last weekend was the Calgary Expo, and getting into a cab dressed as Adam West Batman is a little embarrassing. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> because, like, I opened the car door for Ryan. Yeah. I mm-hmm. almost went, "No, I'm Batman," but oh, boy. I said yes for Ryan. And then, as I get in, I had to move the cape because it wasn't gonna get caught in the door. <laughs> <I> was- <laughs>
0: So, who's it more uh, embarrassing for, you or the taxi driver?
1: Oh, it's definitely more embarrassing for me. I'm sure the mm-hmm. guys seem worse. All right. I Probably hope he's seen true. Worse. <laughs> I'm Batman.
0: I think that when you go do this, like you need to actually be prepared next time. And like the taxi driver rolls up, you for Ryan? No, Batman. And then sit down.
1: Yep. Eh? Eh. Yes. All right. Yes.
0: Uh, we've all lost something in the backseat of a cab. Some of us, it's our dignity. But have you ever lost a Danny DeVito Christmas ornament in your taxi? Well, that has happened. And we all know this because Uber just put out its annual lost and found list. The top (laughs) most forgotten things include cell phones. Yeah, you saw that one coming. Wallets, keys, jewelry, and headphones. Mm -hmm. The list of the most unique items. This is where it gets interesting. Yeah, you ready
2: for this? It includes a Danny DeVito Christmas ornament. I don't know who had that, but there's also a fire sword Chicken wings, painted rat traps, and an important pregnancy test, as well as dentures.
1: (laughs) Pregnancy test is rough.
2: The
0: pregnancy test is rough. Oh, man. Um, That's concerning. Someone was going somewhere to show somebody something. That's what was Mm -hmm. happening with that one. Um, Okay, so there are some other bizarre items left in the back of the taxi, left in the back of the Uber from the list. Okay, you ready? A toy poodle. Now you realize that as actually not a toy poodle, there is also no. a poodle that's a toy poodle, like a real
1: poodle. It's it's worth mentioning that Uber, when they publish this list, it's taken verbatim from the lost reports from the people that take the cab. So it actually says "before toy poodle" in all caps, "my pet, my toy." Oh poodle. wow! So yes, I can confirm that somebody did leave their dog in an Uber.
0: Mm-hmm, wow. Um, that's amazing. Uh, an
1: ankle monitor,
0: as in criminal adjust it? Yep. Um, a printer with remote-controlled vibrator. Oh, printer and a remote-controlled vibrator.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, not not, that's one heck of a printer. Yep.
0: Okay. Um, a pin with Jesus holding a slice of pizza. That's pretty wicked.
1: Pretty good. Pretty good a cat
0: man. collar that says Maui on it. Britney Spears fantasy perfume, tattoo ink, and gold antlers. That's weird. Power of attorney document issued by the <laughs> Turkish consulate. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> and one Gucci loafer, not two, just, just one. one. That's an expensive loss. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, CBS Miami put that together for us. And uh, the most forgetful city in the United States. Jacksonville, Florida. Oh, Florida. That's nice. Doesn't doesn't surprise me, does it? Nope. Okay. Um, 877-399-9898. I'm Shade Hewitt. It's The Shift. Are you okay with phone alarms? Is there anything else really?
1: Yeah, these days I, I, I've i gone through phases with my alarms. Now I just use the generic one. But when I was in high school, I had a horrible habit of sleeping in and sleeping through my alarms. So I tried everything like, you know, loud sounds. Um, I used a bunch of different quotes from Dumb and Dumber. Like when Jim Carrey goes, hey, you want to hear the most annoying sound of the world and screams like that was my alarm for a while. But it was a horrible way to wake up. Just awful. Awful. So eventually, it slowly you. started using a much healthier alarm, and yeah, it gets you know gets the job done. Uh
0: I like the uh, the nice little good morning ones, the Bing 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 mm-hmm. Bing that yeah, kind of stuff. Of and I have the automated one that uh, does my sleep time one every day. So that's uh, that one's always set. And then one of the things that I've done with my alarms is when I get up in the morning, I've got somewhere to go. I will set a series of alarms and I don't mean like that person who sets the alarm and then five minutes later, five minutes later, I will set my alarm. And if I'm setting an alarm with the nature of this show and working late, there's something like it's been a short sleep, right? So, and I do set my be in the shower by this time alarm. And then I usually have a feed the kids or eat breakfast, get the dog out alarm. And then I have a leave the house alarm. And then if it's someplace where I've got to park, it's the time I want to be parked by alarm. And so I do all oh. of those so I can have, you know, sort of some waypoints in my day. Because when I plan it the day before, I think we all fall into this trap of going, well, you know, I can do 10 more minutes. Oh, if I get out of here in five minutes, I'll be fine, right? Stop for a coffee. I've got time. And then it allows you to look at what the original plan was from last night that you know works, right? So... The, I used to do the the brr, brr, brr ones. No, nope, not good for you. Mm, Don't believe that's no. good for you. Nope, no, the uh, the the sleep app I use is really great. It kind of just gently goes off quietly and gets a little bit louder through the course of mm-hmm. through the course of the time. And it it's, it it reads um um it it's just like it, it it reads you in your sleep. So it knows when is the good time to wake you up. Sleep cycle, it's called the one I have. So nice. anyway, Samsung has uh, a pretty pleasant alarm for you if you have a Samsung. For anybody that was trying to sleep, well, yeah, someone's <laughs> trying to fall asleep right now, and that's their alarm. And they're like, What? It's time to get up. <laughs> no, you're good. Don't worry about it. You're Don't good. hit something or sleep. turn it off because you're gonna now, someone's gonna sleep in. It's your fault, Ryan. Yeah, um, iPhones can be a bit annoying. Ah, FaceTime. So, you know, these things, um, these things are they're there. I mean, that's what they do. We all know them, we recognize them, we know what they are. Okay somebody has the phone. Um but that didn't stop one musician from turning that annoying Apple ringtone into a proper piece of music enjoy. <music> That's so nice. Good morning. Welcome back to life. I feel welcome. like this is some utopia movie kind of thing. There's no clouds above the clouds, and life here is beautiful. Until the evil overlord takes over and the conspiracy around the oxygen, obs- like you know what I mean? Like it's like, yeah.
1: Welcome to the moon
0: orb. I feel it's nice. Well done. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Very good.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, if you go to shiftheads.ca on the Facebook group, that whole video is sitting there waiting for you. And you could take advantage of that community for conversation all throughout the weekend, this weekend, links and everything posted up there as well.
1: This is the shift podcast.
0: We go now to the other side of the world into Europe and Ukraine, Odessa, in fact, as we like to do here on The Shift, keep in touch with the conversation, find out what is going on in Ukraine, and uh, I'm very excited, actually, to get into conversation here. Dr. Hannah Shalist joins us from Odessa, and it's been a minute since I've been, I mean, uh, hearing your voice, Hannah, is nice for me. I mean, text messages are nice, but hearing your voice always makes me feel
3: good. How are you? Good morning. And I'm always fascinated how this late in the night you're able to say good morning with such enthusiasm.
0: Well, it's because it's uh, I guess it's, you know, it's it's almost morning and that's what we're here for is get everyone ready for this next part of the day. So I appreciate that. How are things in Edessa? I know that you had shared with us that you love springtime in Edessa. Has it started to warm up?
3: um uh, it is finally spring it is sunny so the mood is definitely much better and as it is the morning each morning is much better than the night especially when the night is with some air raids
0: yeah how have the air raid sirens been in edessa there have been seasons of this last year where it's been very very busy rockets and all those things coming up and um, at the same time um, there have been some seasons that have been a little bit more quiet what's it been like
3: you know, for quite a long time, we were okay. So we had the air raids, but most of them been connected with the other regions just because the threat can be at the whole territory of Ukraine. But two nights ago, yep, that was tough because uh, at three o'clock in the morning, I woke up uh, from the sound of Iranian drones. And mm-hmm. for you to imagine, this is the sound like the very, very old motorbike. Uh, and so when you have several of them, that's really loud. And mm-hmm. uh, plus, uh, just in a few minutes, uh, it was the start of the shelling the attempts of intercepted with different types of the weapons so for now it was quite a loud night i would say
0: uh, is that one of those things that you get good at that you never really want to get good at is being able to identify military weapons flying over your head i mean i bet you didn't ever think that would be a thing
3: you know, I heard it from many uh, friends and colleagues who've been in the uh, uh, war zones, conflict zones around the globe, that is the same feeling that you are learning uh, to have, and that is quite an important uh, probably for your psychological uh, stance.
0: Can you help us understand what, what you've seen from that conversation?
3: Um, definitely that is too much manipulation uh, uh, in uh, all the news or statements that are coming from Moscow. Uh, just if we start thinking logically, it's not about your side, our side. Uh, but try to imagine the Kremlin is the most protected place in the Russian Federation. And uh, uh, suddenly two drones with difference in time of 10 minutes reached uh, the uh, dome of one of the uh, main buildings. Does it mean that their air defence is so bad? Uh, You would not imagine. Yep, one accident, but not two immediately. Then that it is almost no uh, damage to the uh, roof. Then all the statements that it was the assassination against Putin. Absolute nonsense because he's not sleeping there and uh, with a small drone that is impossible to damage the Kremlin building so much to assassinate anybody. And there is definitely, I mean, wrong resources for the wrong purposes. Uh, Plus, uh, we suddenly see fantastic videos. Have you seen this video in colors with all Mm. these uh, explosions? It looks like more from the movie, or or better say stage for the movie, and the quality of the CCTV that probably all police are dreaming uh, to have such detail and good quality videos. And the last but not the least, we didn't receive this information in the morning. All news from Russia that it's happened started to come around lunchtime. What is also quite strange, considering that in the current social networks uh, uh, and everything nobody even discussed in the morning, no statements. If it was such a big uh, uh, attempt of the Ukrainian uh, armed forces or diversions, Russians cannot decide still who is guilty, why it's needed 12 hours even to make announcement? Uh, And then definitely all the statements from the Russian officials like Mr. Medvedev that uh, because of this Ukrainian capital should be punished or Mr. Zelensky should be killed and so on and so on. So we definitely see how it's now used uh, for rhetoric escalation, first of all. But the second, it's definitely used for calling more people coming to the armed forces, so they needed something like this for the mobilization of uh, some newcomers uh, to the armed forces. And the last but not the least, don't forget that they are expecting 9th of May. In many cities, they already canceled the parade, because usually the Russian parade for the 9th of May for the Victory Day is full of military equipment. And uh, they don't have proper equipment to show. Uh, That's why it is also a good reason just to cancel a big parade at the Red Square.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Hannah Shalist is our guest here on The Shift. She joins us from Odessa in Ukraine. Um, Hannah, the question about uh, the expansion of this conversation beyond Ukraine and, and, and claiming that America had to be behind this, that seems to be quite the escalation or at least maybe desperation to bring more troops in.
3: Yes, it seems to me it is more about desperation, because uh, um, for the whole year what we noticed that each time uh, Russian forces are losing at some of the battles, immediately, at least at the level of the social networks, but very often at the military leadership as well, they are claiming that they are losing not to Ukraine, but to Americans, NATO, and then it's just like somebody bigger, somebody more powerful, that it would be probably not so disgusting to lose compared to losing to uh, Ukrainians. And uh, with the U.S., definitely, uh, it's just the main narrative of the Russians that um, it is uh, U.S. war, Ukrainians are just puppets, that it is Americans who would like to have this war, and only because of the weapons from the U.S., Ukraine is capable to do at least uh, something. And um, that's just the general anti-American ideology that we are following, Uh, not only this year, let's be honest, that is the ideology for uh, decades um, in Moscow, but uh, uh, again, Logically thinking, the U.S. been prohibiting Ukraine and there were several political scandals because of this to target anything at the Russian territory. It took us some time even to um, probably uh, not have an approval because we're not receiving like this, but... Uh, to to have the uh, agreement that we can target something in Crimea because Crimea is Ukraine, not Russia, and mm. suddenly we are targeting not just Moscow but the Kremlin uh, by by the U.S. intention, uh, absolutely illogical um, to all their statements, uh, 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 close negotiations, or the, the the logic of the support that the U.S. is ready to present us. Remember, they were not even giving us the long-range missiles. Exactly with the uh, uh, statement that uh, you should promise us not to target objects at the Russian territory,
0: right, yeah, so it wouldn't it doesn't even add up, right? in, in any way. Um what else, Hannah? I mean, political science is your thing. Um, being able to go to other places, meet with other leaders uh, in your area and around the world. is there what's on your mind from that conversation that you're hearing from your colleagues um to be able to uh, share with us that that I don't know. What do I need to know?
3: You know, that's quite an interesting. The uh, last months, since I've been in different countries, and uh, more and more we started to hear these statements like, okay, war is enough. It's not war fatigue, but it's something like, okay, but you need peace. You need to sit for the negotiations table. Uh, why are you asking for the tribunal? Or uh, uh, why Ukrainians cannot just sit and negotiate? Russians probably are ready. If not ready, let's discuss this. Uh, what you're ready to compromise. Interesting first that nobody's asking what Russia is going to compromise.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. Um, Hannah Shalas joins us from uh, Odessa in Ukraine. And it is a uh, the connections a little bit up and down. So thank you for your patience with that. We're going to continue to try to get her back here as we uh, we're doing this. Now, one of the things I'm going to share with you why the team is so busy in the background is because there are wildfires in Edmonton. Uh, west of Edmonton that have a bunch of closures in Drayton Valley being evacuated. So what's happening in the background is not only are we reconnecting here uh, with Hannah to make sure that we've got her, is that we also um, are chasing um, some information for what that is. We do have someone on standby who is close to this from the Global TV folks who's going to help us understand shortly here in about 10 minutes, so stick around for that. And we are only a couple of minutes away uh, to getting another update on what's going on with wildfires and so much more in and around Edmonton. And, you know, it was February of last year, uh, a year ago, and one of the things that came up around the conversation with Ukraine is that um, we uh, was when, when do we stop talking about it? Um, wh- at what point do we um, do we do we stop? So, you know, and the answer to that was when we can go there. That's the best of what we do, right? And so, we've been very very lucky to be introduced to um, have this. Access to these people, and you know the the folks that we talk to, uh, geopolitical political science folks that are traveling around, meeting with uh, people everywhere around the world to advocate for Ukraine and be able to share the message and get that perception that Hannah was sharing with us about what other people think so uh, we lost you there Hannah again oh, what's yes. um that's okay the internet goes up and down that's the nature of this connection yeah. um the um, so w- what are the other countries saying are they being mostly critical or are you still seeing support or has that started to
3: change? You know there's definitely a lot of support especially when you go to the Nordic countries and to the eastern uh, most of the Eastern European countries that's quite a positive and uh, um, we really hear the understanding of uh, the long-term goals of the Russian Federation and uh, what should be done on the ground uh, we hear it in the United Kingdom Sweden Norway Finland uh, now when Finland joined NATO uh, um. Their rhetoric became even stronger because they had experience of all these decades of the difficult relations with the Russian Federation themselves. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, uh, there are still uh, sometimes politicians, sometimes uh, the countries uh, that uh, pretend that uh, nothing serious is happening or that uh, the phrase is like, oh, it should be stopped in one day. I can do it. Come on. It's impossible to stop in one day when you have such a complex uh, aggression.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, It's absolutely fascinating. Hannah Shalas joins us from Odessa, Ukraine. It's on the Black Sea. Uh, It's beautiful there. It's it's the vacation place where people normally go to. Things are very different these days as you can't go in the water and so much more. Hannah, um, uh, give Benjamin, your dog, a scratch for us, and thanks so much for being with us and making this work. I know you've been so busy traveling, and I really appreciate you making the time.